Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Final Girl Wines. Final Girl Wines is a boutique mom-and-pop wine label any horror lover can be proud to share. Whether it's a quiet movie night on your couch or a Halloween gift for a friend, there's a Final Girl wine for every palate and every occasion. Their wines have scored 90 points and above in Wine Enthusiast magazine at prices that won't break the bank. Final Girl Wines have extended their Halloween promotion for our listeners. Join the four-bottle wine club by Thanksgiving and get four bottles for just $88. Member benefits include 10% off of all future purchases, and you can cancel at any time. Again, that is Final Girl Wines. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Black Friday is coming, and Fright Rags is preparing for the biggest sale of the year. Site-wide savings with t-shirts as low as $10, plus all new items like tote bags, face masks, and more. Also get cozy with a brand new Silent Night, Deadly Night knit ugly sweater. Uh, the sale begins at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Friday, uh, November the 27th, all officially licensed and available exclusively at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off their first order using Colors of Dark 10. And welcome to the Colors of the Dark podcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I am your co-host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. Dr. Elric Kane, for, for you? No, no, you have, wait, what, MFA? It's terminal. I've seen uh, the Muppets. You can call yourself anything you want in this world. You know, they do all sorts of things. They have fish that explode. For Dr. Teeth. <laughs> I'll do what I need. I wonder if Dr. Teeth was a real doctor. I feel like somewhere he was. You know, I- I'm going to go with it. So Dr. Alwork from now on to you uh, while we do the show. That's it. I'm adding a fucking Esquire. That's where we are. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing okay. It's been it's been a better week, you know. We're we're post Halloween madness. We're post elections. Um, not post election madness. Post election. Post election madness. We're still there. COVID's coming back. I've heard we're making a come. It's making a comeback. Um, oh yeah, and I just heard mental illness is one of the uh, after effects. So I'm like, oh great, great, just what yeah, everyone needs in this world. That is so. So this is completely unrelated to horror. But my son had a um, pediatrician's appointment, and we're in there, and she was like, how often um, during the day is is your son using like the iPad and screens? And I was like, well, it was 30 minutes and now it's upwards of like four hours a day. Yeah. Um, and she was like, you know, that's really, that's where we are. Like yeah. she didn't even blink. Um, but she did say that um, regression to infant behaviors and um, not advancing verbally has become rampant amongst toddlers. So I think amongst uh, podcasters as well. I <laughs> um, I've noticed we've regressed certainly. Um, if, if you <laughs> Telling you stories about my child's pediatrician appointment. That's where we are, That's folks. Where we are. That's where we are. But like we know you are too, so I, I, I'm sure you appreciate it. If you missed it, uh, we did drop between our Halloween episode and this one, we dropped our live episode uh, from Chattanooga, a fright, uh, frightening ass fest, where we counted down, you know, 10 or 20 of the most messed up uh, disturbing movies of all time. And that was a fun one. So if you didn't catch that, there was like a... a don't know if I'd call it fun. It's fun. We talked about the feebles. 
Like I needed a shower after that one. That one was intense. Um, yeah, I don't think like, our I don't think our delivery is that intense. I don't think no, anyone. No. It never got bleak, but the films, like I definitely, when I was looking over the list, I was like, I never wanted to think about in a glass cage again. Like as long yeah. as I lived, and there it is, and I'm remembering it. And so, yeah. So if you um, need a list of movies to take a shower after, we made a good one. Uh, so intense, yeah. Um, so it is a fun show as we we kind of go through some of the most extreme shit we've ever seen. So cycle back and check that out if you missed it somehow. Um, but we were, you know, the pandemic, this, these times can be tough, but we did see a new movie that was uh, incredibly fun. Um, Gosh, yeah. And I thought, even though we're not going to go that deep because it's just coming out today uh, in theaters, but it will be another you know, few weeks before it's on VOD. So a lot of people probably won't see it till then. Uh, but we saw a Freaky uh, directed by Chris Landon. Um, and it just is the perfect roller coaster, probably the most fun I've had in a movie this year. Honestly, this was it was just such a tight film. And I have to say, I was skeptical. Um, I remember we were still at Blumhouse when they started production on this. And I remember everybody talking about the horror Freaky Friday movie is what they were saying around the office. It was like, oh, yeah, it's like the slasher version of Freaky Friday. And I just remember thinking, how the hell does that work? That sounds so awful. Um, and then seeing it, I was it's, I mean, and I'm wrong all the time with that, because I remember being like Facebook, the movie that sounds terrible. And then Unfriended was great. Um, so yeah, I, oh, I thought I, you were going social network with that. I had you totally <laughs> took a different direction from me. I was like, I was like social. Okay, no, David. Social Fincher. network's fine. No, unfriended. That was another one where I remember them like talking about it around the office, yeah. and I was like, it sounds like Facebook the movie. That's lame. And then as soon as I see it, I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and that's how I felt about this. Like I, I remember hearing about it and just being like, I don't know how that's gonna work. And then I actually see it, and it was just brilliant. Yeah, it's a genre hype mashup between you know teen slasher and a teen comedy and a body swap movie um if you haven't i would go in seeing as little as you can uh mm -hmm. don't don't overhype it but like you know you know if you've listened to us in the past this is not a movie aimed at me and yet this is the most fun i've had watching a movie this year so uh i think vince vaughn getting to play a 16 year old girl for most of this movie is one of the best things you'll get to experience this year yes and and it is um I do have to say, like, it, it really does um, have a lot to say in it as well about gender identity, about what it is to be a teen girl, um, which is crazy because it's written by Chris and Mike. Um, and we'll be talking to Chris in a little bit on the show. Um, and Mike Kennedy's been on um, before and one of the prior hosts of The Queer Wolves, who we love dearly. Um, but yeah, somehow they were kind of able to channel the rage of being a 15 year old girl who doesn't feel like her voice is being heard or like she's making any difference in the world. And, um, and, and bullying a lot of, uh, you definitely a lot get a of lot, bullying. you get the sense of the bullying. And I think, it, and often in the, like the Stephen King movie adaptations, that tends to be the cheesiest element of most of those adaptations. And then in, in this, I think it works really well. Uh, I just think it, I think it's really funny and it actually is, uh, you know, feels like a hard R and I think that's usually my issue with teen anything is it feels like it's you're always kind of wishing i wish this pushed it a little further but the voices are very um i feel like are part of the r i don't think the r is just the gore and the and the intensity i think the way this kids talk is like kids actually talk and therefore they kind of it kind of ups the ante a little bit i think yeah and i will say it does not pull any punches on the kills like the kills uh -huh. are intense yeah there's some gory um, stuff 
Yeah. And some really funny ones as well. Like it was yeah. really invent- innovative with the kills. Um, but yeah, so I definitely um, recommend checking out Freaky. I have a feeling it'll be in both of our top 10 lists. Oh, yeah. No, it is so much. Do. Yeah, in December. Yeah, in December. Well, we've been, I think both of us been, you know, we focus, regardless of the show, I think we both are interested in new horror films constantly. So I think we're always trying to see almost everything before we do that. So we're, mm-hmm. we're probably going to be in good position. So Freaky's fantastic. You will, you will see a bit of a slasher trend in the latter part of the show and our conversation with Chris Landon, the director. But before that, we're going to break down some of the things we have been watching. A couple more. We have a couple more new ones. Did you want to do uh, the good or the less uh, good to start out with? <laughs> you know what? Let's start with the super good because um, yeah. I watched this one last night and I was yeah. so excited to talk about it. And this is His House, um, which is currently on Netflix. This is directed by Remy Weeks. Um, and the setup of this one is about a couple who is um, the refugees from South Sudan. And you find out in the very opening of the movie that they left South Sudan with a daughter um, and she did not make the trip across, that something happened to their boat as they were trying to cross the Mediterranean um, and she drowned. And then it fast forwards like three months to the couple. They are now in the UK as refugees and they're in a refugee camp and they finally get placed in a home. And they are there under temporary asylum. But there are all these rules that go along with it. Um, They are given this home. They may not leave this home. They may not find a different home. They have to stay here. They have to report to all of these different um, appointments with all of these different government officials. There are inspections that will happen where people visit the home to see what's going on and if they're adjusting. And it's all about kind of adjusting to society and making sure that they are kind of trying to better themselves and, and find a new life here. And they get to their home, which is a total disgusting piece of shit, but it is theirs. Um, and it's a whole townhouse that they get or like a row house. And then um, within the first night there, they realize that something is seriously wrong with this house. And it just keeps escalating and escalating. But at the same time, they are desperate to not be sent back to Sudan because they will be killed. And so they are forced to stay there and they cannot leave and they have to keep checking in with these appointments and people are coming by constantly. And so it's this constant um, feeling of desperation, of having to try to stay here, of being in this absolutely horrible situation. Um, And this movie is fucking terrifying. There are some scenes I literally yelped out loud at a couple of scenes of this. Um, which I was not expecting. Almost, almost like a, a like a bit of a Fulci imagery. I felt like with some of the ghosts. So it's it's a yeah. ghost story, but it, it, it some of the, if you looked it up on IMDb, it would make it sound like the house is haunted. But the house isn't haunted. They're they're haunted. They're, they're haunted. Cursed. The idea is yeah. yeah, yeah. The ghosts are following them, and he is not wanting to. So basically, it's it's a married couple, and the the guy doesn't want to deal with it. He wants to basically not faces kind of demons and his issues, but the girl, uh, his wife really doesn't believe they belong there. She can't get used to being there. And that's where it's almost like the stuff that kind of springs up uh, between you and from the walls themselves uh, because of kind of the, the gap between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, within that, you get some really scary, it makes, we're definitely pitching what sounds like a social drama and that it exists in this, but when it goes creepy, it's actually really scary. And some of the best. It's so scary. Work. Yeah. So yeah, it really does. Um, I, I kind of, while I was watching it, it felt like it had notes of the grudge, the idea that the house isn't haunted, the people are, um, that it is this thing that they take with them, um, that it's constantly there. And uh, and 
that was, but at the same time, it does have this amazing family dynamic of her not wanting to be there, realizing this is her only option, but all she is thinking about is getting back home, how she doesn't want to use a fork. She doesn't want to talk with the neighbors. Everybody in the neighborhood is assholes. Um, and you know, all this stuff, whereas he's out at like the British equivalent of, I guess it's like H&M or the Gap, um, buying all these clothes so that they can try to fit in. Trying to assimilate. Um, well, it's also, it does something smart about race because it, uh, often culture goes beyond those kind of conversations where she's out and she's being kind of harassed by three young black British kids. And you realize it's really not about her color to them. It's about belonging. You're not part yeah. of this society. And I think that was a really interesting distinction. But yeah, no, this is a this is a real gem. And I think it's continuing a bit of a trend because one of my favorite films from last year was Atlantics, uh, which was a very, very different kind of movie that was like a quieter, I feel like a bit more of Val Luden ghost story type thing. That about one, migrants. Yeah, that one. And that was on both of our top 10s from last year, if I remember correctly. And that one didn't really become a horror movie until the last 20 minutes and then it went crazy well and it was it was there but it was this they're very different in that way i think in the end atlantics is a little bit more of my bag but uh his house is a lot is a lot bolder and i think it will fit a lot easier into the horror category for people you but are both right yeah you are right that this is really fulci with some of the scares just a few um, of them yeah house yeah. by the cemetery kind of moments i thought yeah, yeah it's got a lot of cool moments like that um and there's a lot to do with like walls of the house and stuff being in the walls like it's got a lot of really cool notes and again some of the jump scares i actually like squeaked out loud at yes i squeak um but, and it's <laughs> telling us i think we're seeing the uh, jordan peele's global influence of being being able to say we can you know you have this little movie that could have just been about refugees or you have this little movie about refugees who didn't make it and as soon as you then layer it with a genre and horror you realize you can get to a lot more people you can take this film from england suddenly be a big american netflix release and i think that's yeah. telling us a lot about the change well this actually was not a little film nor was it supposed to be just a british film this film was owned by weinsteins um I but it was a bbc film i know it was a Weinstein. Um, so Star, Star, I can't remember the name of the com- production company in the UK. Um, but Weinstein was supposed to originally be the financiers on it. And there was some type of lawsuit that happened. I don't even remember the details of it, but Weinstein ended up suing Starchild. That's the name of the production mm-hmm. company. Um, Weinstein ended up suing Starchild and then they, they parted ways with Weinstein. Um, and then Vertigo what became the financiers on it. Uh, what I, what I meant by small movies is um, take out the genre and these are tiny. Oh, yeah. So these would be a movie about immigrants that basically would go to your local film festival and never get seen. But I think what, what, what we've seen the change is now like you see these art house directors who probably may never have put a toe into horror suddenly mixing oh, yeah. these genres. And I think we're seeing these films get seen by a lot more people and these cultural kind of societal uh, points can get across to a lot more people, which I think is pretty cool um, from those two examples, at least. <laughs> when the um, the government official shows up, the, the person um, that they have to keep checking back in with their like government rep shows up. I had to do this double take where I'm like, where the fuck do I know this guy from? It was like, oh my God, I've watched everything. It's yeah. Doctor Who in like a polo and khakis. You know, the, um, the best Matt one, Smith. the best one you'll miss him for. He is so awesome in it is uh, that Ryan Gosling directorial debut, Lost River. Matt Smith has a shaved head and is all muscly in that. And he's like the thug, the white trash thug. It is awesome. Like, <laughs> it is. no, I, I kind of double take too. I was like, wait a minute. Why is Doctor Who giving them the house? But it's, I didn't even care. 
catch it. It took me five minutes of going, what the fuck do I know him from before I just was like, oh, the scarf. Like, it just hit me then. Um, and then so, I was like, oh. So from uh, a must-see with themes of horror and race to a lesser must-see film about horror and race? Of horror and race. What um, do you think? Okay. Antebellum. Okay, so Antebellum, this had all of the things that I would have wanted to see in a movie. Like if you had just listed everything that goes into this movie, I would have been like, oh, this is going to be the film of the year. It's about race. It's centered on African-American women. Um, It's definitely doing something trippy with the plot where it's bouncing around the timelines all disjointed. Um, It's got Janelle Monae as the lead. Um, I would have said this is going to be the best film of the year. This is like the next Get Out. Um, there is something about this movie that just did not work. Now that said, it's still doing some stuff that I liked and I'm still trying to, this is weird because I have not stopped thinking about this film and trying to break it down and figure out exactly kind of what went wrong. And at the same time, what went right? Because while I was watching it, I was so in, um, for most of it. And then something happened and then I was suddenly like, I don't know. That just yeah, and, and we'll be more careful than normal because mm-hmm. this is very twist it's dependent. Twist. It's definitely a movie that's twist dependent. And I somebody had told me there's a big twist, but I as I looked at the clock as I was watching the movie and I was like, wait a minute, it's thirty nine minutes and nothing's nothing's twisted and I was starting to get uh yeah, look, I think there's some clever stuff and I actually did like the twist for as a twist. That's all I'll say about it from now. Um, but as a movie, I felt, it, look, it's so hard to offend me. I, I watched a film not long ago for the other show when we're doing black exploitation called Black Gestapo, and I wasn't offended because, you know, I knew what it was. I knew it was an exploitation film made in the 70s, uh, and I knew who made it, and I kind of knew the story. Watching this, it felt, um, it's one of the first films in a very long time where I felt a little bit offended by the, which is just such so weird for me to even say. It was it was exploitive. It right. definitely- and, and, but exploitive with a glossy big budget, watching um, a lot of suffering and uh, torture in, in the opening. Not saying that that's wrong. And I certainly wouldn't judge it because I think that I that's think what it was trying the wrong place. for. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think, think it's hard. It was in this. trying for realism. It was trying for historical realism of what African-American women actually would have gone through, what the beatings were like, what the torture was like, what the punishments were like. But in that, because it was this big glossy horror movie with this big score behind it, it did. It felt it felt odd. It feels like a prestige Oscar bait pick movie that is then mixed with Saw at the start. And you're like, ah, oh, this is making me feel kind of bad. I mean, the timing wasn't great. I watched it right after the Biden announcement. So I was feeling like kind of hopeful. And then suddenly this came on. I suddenly felt like shit. Um, that said, there's some really interesting stuff. I think the middle really drags um, where, where there isn't a lot of horror or even intensity. And then suddenly it gets, goes to town. We won't kind of go, say much more about the ending, but I don't know. I just was left. I, I definitely didn't work for me. This isn't a film that I, I just don't think this film actually works uh, very well. I think it's, um, I see the hand and like the music video commercial director making a feature vibe, which I really at times with turn off a lot of slow-mo, a lot of people, you know, just, there's just things now I didn't hate it. It more just, it kind of touched a chord and I, I, but like you, I have thought about it again because there were some really interesting ideas in it. Yeah. Like I really, really like what it was trying to do. Um, what it was doing with the plot. I am so like, yes, I love that. 
but it just didn't work. Um, and it was then, meant to be a big yeah. release. Like, remember back when we saw the trailer oh in the theater? Oh, my God. We saw the trailer for this, I think, before Underwater back yeah. in January. Oh, it, it looked um, like it was yeah. going to be a big deal. And so now for it to have just kind of eked out into during the pandemic, you're kind of like, well, maybe that was the right thing for it in the end. And it has been a really kind of bifurcating film where as I was looking at the reviews online, there were it was either like, I loved this or I didn't get it. There was something that just didn't work. Um, um, and so it has really kind of split people down, you know, the central line with like, I, I don't know why it didn't work for me or I loved everything it was doing. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely have to say I'm in the middle. I am very much in the middle. Like there were things that did not work at all, but then there were other parts that I was like, that was cool. Um yeah. Yeah, and I will say the one thing I liked about it was I didn't. I also didn't think necessarily Janelle Mo- and Monet. I, lo- I do like her music. I didn't think she's necessarily right for the lead. I did really like seeing Precious, um, the actress who played Precious uh, Gibbonet. I've forgotten her last uh, name. Yes. Um, uh, oh man, Gabrielle um, Sibido. Sibido. I really liked her, and she she brought like a total contemporary kind of voice where she bursts into the movie. Uh, she's really good, and also it's always I always think um, uh, what is a uh, Jenna Malone is always a really she's a little underused in this but uh mm. but she's always a great actress in everything she's in but but i don't know yeah there's things about it now if if it sounds like we're giving you way less of plot than normal because we pretty much just said nothing i think it's because if we do it's kind of hard to talk about it's there's two different kind of timelines being presented and uh, i i went in thinking it was a ghost story from the trailer like it was about somebody who's going to be haunted about the ghost of the civil past yes so and I. that is definitely not what it is but so i will we'll just leave it at that so up to it's still a little expensive right now, but probably in a couple of weeks it will be down to you know normal renting price. And somebody had asked me on Instagram, should I still see this? Hmm. And my thing is, yeah, you should still see this because oh. it is still doing something. Yeah. Um, I I do still I it's not gonna be like in my top ten of the year, probably, but it is still doing something. It's that it's um, that thing where sometimes you'll see, you know, especially younger people will see a movie and go, Oh, that's misogynistic. And you're like, Well, that one might come off that way, but it's actually made about misogyny, or this movie is about racism. It's not necessarily racist. See, yeah, I saw a lot of complaints online about it being racist. So what I mean I, is I don't in, think it's meant that way. What I think happens is it, the the filmmakers have to it's a it's a bold swing whenever you do something like this uh, and we need filmmakers to do it just like Candyman. i showed Candyman to students uh most of them really liked it but a lot of them were poking at things that i'm like no i'm pretty sure that was on purpose to kind of provoke and make you think um but again i think it's when you don't completely you're not completely successful as the as the directors nailing that idea that you tried to land that it can then come off as something else but i do i agree with you i think they were trying to make this for the right reasons um it's pretty ugly. That would be the only warning I'd have. It's pretty ugly. And, and not visually, but emotionally, it's pretty ugly. You're, you were damn right when you said it's like 12 years um, a slave mixed with Saw, yeah, it's which that kind of is a weird thing to even think about. But that's how the first 20 minutes of the film feels. Yeah. So you make up your mind and you write to us and tell us. But um, yeah. but, but I, I'm with you. I do think it's worth watching this year as you watch all the horror films. So mm-hmm. um, because it's certainly not bad because it's not well made. It, that's not the reason I'm, I'm kind of have critical of it. So it's a different feeling. Yeah. Um, what other new ones? Any other new? new, um, new? So this wasn't new, new. This came out um, a couple of months ago, but it was one that I missed. Um, and this is Becky. Um, All right. Yeah. Which, I've been meaning to see I, it. 
I'd miss this because it's um, it's not really a horror film. It's no. more of kind of a thriller that gets like super fucking gory, which I'll talk about in a sec. Um, and this is directed by Jonathan Malott and Carrie Murnian. And I apologize if I mispronounced those names. Um, two guys. And the setup of this is so simplistic where um, Joel McHale and his daughter is Lulu Wilson. And their mother has died of cancer. And Lulu is like angsty, hardened teenager whose mom has died. She just hates everything. Her and her dad, Joel, are fighting constantly. And he decides to take her on this camping trip at this old cabin that they used to go to all the time with their mom. And um, and she gets there and dad has invited his new girlfriend along, is like waiting there with her son when they get there. And, um, and immediately Lulu is like, fuck this shit. I'm, I'm going to be down at the lake. <clears throat> and so we open into this kind of tense situation anyway, between the daughter and the new girlfriend and dad trying to be the peacekeeper with everybody. And then the new girlfriend has like a seven-year-old son that is just like, I, I'm just kind of here. Um, he wants to play with the daughter, but she doesn't want anything to do with him. And so in this environment, these really kind of um, thuggish guys who have just escaped from prison show up at the door and they calm their way in and they are led by Kevin James, hmm. um, is amazing in this. Hmm. And what you find out is um, that they are actually neo-Nazis and that they believe that there is this thing in the house that they need. There is a key somewhere in this house um, that they knew their mom. And that there is this key that they need um, and that they have to have it and they are not going to let anybody go and they will kill everybody in that house to get it. But they think that the people there know where the key is. And so they kind of systematically start killing everybody to try to find this key. And everybody starts fighting back. And then it literally becomes like a siege movie. Um, and this isn't a spoiler there because it's it's the biggest thing that everybody talks about. There's a scene where um, Kevin James's eyeball gets ripped out and it's like dangling and he has to cut it off with a pair of scissors yeah. um, because it's like dangling out of his cheek. And it is, that isn't even the craziest scene. Um, but it is that level of it's an exploitation film. Like this is straight up a 1970s kind of like walking tall exploitation film. Um, and it, and it's all, but in this, it's all about Lulu Wilson. It is all about her. She plays Becky, um, fighting her way out, um, and taking down this pack of ex cons who are looking for this thing that her mom used to have. Um, so it's intense. Like that's, that's, it has not gotten a lot of play as a horror film because it is not, there's no ghosts. There is no slash. I mean, home invasion films are always. Yeah. It's, it's a straight up home invasion, but this thing, it goes for the gore. It goes for the visceral. Hmm. Um, so yeah, this one, it was, I, I don't know. Well, if I like I, it or not. Yes. Okay. Yes, you will. It was, it was, I, I'm struggling to call it fun. It was entertaining the whole time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Kevin James is great part is hard for me to imagine right now, but I'm going to go with it, especially after seeing him in, him in uh, what, that new Adam Sandler, ha- Hubie Halloween, where he was by far the worst in it. He was like, I was just like, what is he even doing in this movie with a weird wig and beard? Um, he, he should be doing more roles like this. Like Kevin James as badass ex-con was great. 
Um, and this movie is all about playing against type because Joel McHale plays this dad who is not telling jokes the whole time. Um, he's just this dad trying to get his teen daughter to talk to him. Like the whole thing is kind of against type. Um, but it really does work in that capacity. Um, I saw a show I did not intend on watching, a brand new, a newest show. Uh, I, Apple TV, if you happen to stumble into Apple TV like I did, which is if you buy any Apple product, I guess, or an iPad or anything, they give you a year free or something. So I suddenly had this new thing and I, I dug around and found a show called Servant uh, that M. Night Shyamalan is the executive producer of and directed mm-hmm. the first episode. And then I found myself watching all 10 episodes within like two nights because I was totally transfixed by it. It is, I think you'd like it. It's very slow burn. It, uh-huh. um, you have Lauren Ambrose, uh, your, uh, your other part of your extended redheaded family from yes. six feet under, uh, her, Toby Kibble, uh, then the other redhead, uh, uh, sibling you have from across the ocean from Harry Potter, uh, Rupert Grint, the boy. Um, I love that. Um, so like, I'm just going to assume all New Zealanders know each other cause you we, know, all redheads are related. I mean, I know a couple, um, <laughs> Rupert Grint, he's in there. Um, so basically it's this couple, it's very, it's kind of dour at the start. It's a couple who are live in Philadelphia. Um, the guy is a kind of high profile, uh, chef assistant type guy. The woman is a television, um, journalist. They are spending a lot of time with their baby, but you don't really see their baby. And then after, you know, like 15 minutes, you realize, wait, that's not a, there's a great part where just, and I have to kind of spoil this part where the dad just is like coddling it. And then he just drops it and you realize it's a doll and you're like, Oh, and so basically you start to learn that they've lost their child recently, Mm -hmm. the baby, and that the, the wife particularly hasn't really come to grips with it. So for emotional reasons, they are pretending that this baby is real. Okay, so that's not the the twist. So you haven't lost anything. Basically, she then hires, uh, much to his chagrin, she hires a nanny for a not real baby. So she gets this young girl played by Nell Tigerfree, who uh, has been popping up in a lot of stuff lately, and she's really good. I just totally forgot what the big thing she was in recently. Um, it wasn't Neon Demon. Oh, it was Only God Forgives, the big TV mm-hmm. show. And um, she comes in as this very quiet, mousy girl. And when she looks at it, she thinks, acts totally like it's real and then after a couple nights there she's moved in and he's like why are we paying this girl to pretend you know further this pathos then the guy he starts finding these little weird wood cutouts hanging above the baby and then next time he goes into the crib there's a baby in the crib and he's like what the fuck there's a baby here where the fuck did this baby come from and so now it becomes is the baby real where did the baby come from he definitely doesn't see it as a doll anymore. Uh, neither does his friends. Anyone he says it's a real baby and they're finding all these kind of weird uh, kind of uh, folk horror type imagery around the place. And you start realizing that this girl who has come into their lives, uh, we don't know a lot about her. And, sl- and that you only in the first season, it's open. There's a second season coming. You don't get a lot of answers, but you get a lot of intrigue. And by the time it ended, I was like, wanting to throw my TV because I wanted more straight away to know where it was going to expand to. Um, super intriguing. And it's, and it's all done in that. And each episode, it's great because the reason I got through so much, it's like 30 minutes each episode. So, so you kind of burn through it because it's, it's shorter, uh, but the acting is really good and it's very serious. It's very a 24 kind of vibes of a uh, serious kind of uh, mm-hmm. loss horror, but it's just super intriguing. Once you, once this baby is real, you're like, wait a minute, what is happening now? Which is, is the twist. Um, did you have any more new ones? I had one more new, new one. 
No, um, I will say I watched Cadaver on, oh, yeah, tell, yeah, on right. Netflix. You that, yeah. yeah, I mentioned this on our Patreon show, Deep Cuts. Um, I I really liked where this was. I liked the way this looked. Um, it's It's got this very kind of theatrical look to it. But you're going to see all horror fans will see where it is headed, like what the twist is um, from like basically five minutes in. Um, The setup is that it is this post-apocalyptic society and everyone is starving to death. They're actually like eating dust because it's the only thing left in the world um, to eat, except for at the edge of town, there's this massive hotel and these rich people who live there. And occasionally they'll come out and they'll invite poor people in to watch a show and have dinner. We're inviting you to be dinner or to, you know, to, to have dinner and to see a show and all this stuff. Um, and so it's very um, clear really quickly where this is going and what they're, you know, everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so it was one of these were like five minutes in. I was like, oh, they're eating people at the hotel. Um, they're going to kill them and eat them. But then it's two hours to get to that moment. Um, which was a little frustrating because the film is definitely shot with like this, you don't know, but then there's all of this like nodding and hinting and stuff like that. So that was frustrating. But that said, um, there, there were moments of it that I was like, this is, it's, it's a nice looking film. Um, I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I would recommend this if you're just looking for like a good scare or just looking for a tight movie. If you're a completionist, this is there. Um, yeah, it well, was not. This will not be on my top ten list of the year. Uh, if the world isn't making you feel bad enough, uh, I have a good movie for you. Uh, the Swerve uh, is a new film that we missed at Panic Fest. I wanted to see it and it was getting really good reviews out of there. Uh, director Dean Caspalis. And the reason I want to give this a mention, it's it's you know borders on horror. It's really uh, a kind of a study in depression like really uh mental illness it's a mother uh and main reason i want to give a shout out to this is because it's one of the best performances i've seen of the year uh zero sky as this depressed mom teacher her kids don't say thank you anymore her husband is not noticing her she thinks there's a mouse in their house she's not sleeping and slowly she has a massive like spiral it's maybe the ultimate downward spiral movie it goes to a very dark place at the end so i would put it with a warning for those who aren't in that headspace right now because uh, a lot of us are stuck with families uh and it could go could go to kind of dark but um i def- definitely want to mention also ashley bell plays her sister uh from last exorcism and it was fun to see her and they're like totally different they have a competitive it's very real i think if anyone wants to see something about like real family dynamics at play uh, when something goes wrong. I think it's a pretty interesting film, but it goes to a very dark place. So I definitely want to give it a shout out at least. I feel like we're living in family dynamics gone wrong. I know, right? That is, that is, and yes, politically and home life and everything. Uh, (laughs) But uh, any, any older things? Uh, I got a couple. Um, No, that was basically um, everything I watched this week. Yeah, I'll throw I'll throw out the old ones because they're not. I'm not going to go deep. I did a double feature just because I've rewatched these. I want to make sure people remember Evil Dead remake and my uh, not my soul to take. Um, uh, drag me to hell. I hadn't That's a much better double yes, feature. Yes, not my soul, my to, soul take. to take. Uh, I hadn't seen either of these since theaters. Um, and love both of them. And after we talked to Ryan in our first episode, I just I think it was this was the day after Halloween. I watched these, and they're so freaking good, like so good. Like Drag Me to Hell is just really one of the best horror films last like decade. It's so uh, fast and fun and intense. Um, but the other one I wanted to give in case people have not been, um, you know, going back to this one is fourteen oh eight. 
I love that movie. Yeah, this is like such a funhouse horror film. Uh, I was doing it on that ghost kick, but um, it's Mikael Hefstrom from 2007, based on a Stephen King uh, story um, about this uh, hotel room, 1408, in the Dolphin Hotel, where Samuel L. Jackson is the... Uh, um, the person running the hotel and John Cusack is basically a guy who's just going around debunking, writing books on haunted spaces and hotels mostly. And, uh, he kind of debunks them, but also gives them a little, you know, uh, talking up so people will go there and he's not where he wants to be in life. But what I didn't know is I didn't realize this was written. Uh, the script was written by the guys who wrote Ed Wood, uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. And I feel it kind of really elevates the material when I was watching this going, okay, this is a great script. And the only thing I'd say is the last act of it gets a little too enamored with the toys at their disposal. Mm-hmm. It's like a giant set movie where they get to play with like light things on fire and do all that rather than being scary. And when like halfway point, it can be still really quite scary. And, I remember and, it's snowing. In- yeah, yeah, exactly. So it gets so crazy, which is fun to watch. Don't get me wrong. I still like it. But it was one of those movies where if it wanted to just scare you, the first like, you know, 30 minutes of him in the room is really quite scary. And the buildup is scary. Uh, so it's kind of a choice they made. Um, but I, I just wanted to put that one back on people's uh, radars. And then I had one last one as we segue to slashers that I watched um, just a couple nights ago. I thought I'd seen this. It's a film that I thought was boarding house all these years, but it's called The Silent Scream. Um, and it does, oh. yeah, it's directed by a guy, Denny Harris in 1979, but there is an element of this that you're going to particularly like, which is instead of Bad Ronald, I was calling this Bad Barbara, because imagine Bad Ronald, but Barbara Steele is in the wall. Oh, shit. Yes. Oh, my God. So this is an American movie um, set at a college, basically opens and no one can get housed. What is this called again? Silent? It's Silent Scream. I had always read about it because it's about a boarding house. And th- mixed it up with a, that kind of SOV boarding house movie that is pretty well. So basically, it's a girl. I kind of enjoy yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind of kind of cheap and nasty, fun. But this one is a, a girl's coming to college, and she gets there late, and there's no more housing in the entire town. And so she finds this boarding house that's on a beach that looks like a mansion. And there's a bunch of other students living there, so she feels like cool. And the mom is Yvonne DiCarlo from the uh, the Monsters. Yeah, she's from the Monsters, right? Yeah, she's the I think right. Yeah, or Adam's mm-hmm. family. Yes, she's Monsters. Monsters, yes. I I don't want to get those mixed up. Uh, So she's obviously older at this point. And um, she's renting a room. She has a really weird son who's totally oddball. um, And no Barbara Steele to be found, even though I knew she was in the film. I was like, this is weird. And as the movie goes along, uh, basically, there's some slashing. Some of the the people living there suddenly get killed. And then the camera goes behind the wall. And you realize that years ago, the Barbara Steele, when she was young, had obviously had some sort of trauma that had led her to killing or harming someone. And they all said she disappeared and left town. So they do a pull a bad Ronald and let her live in the wall. So the mom and brother are, are kind of covering for her, but now she is starting to do very bad things because she can't control because she's kind of gone. Um, uh, as they say, dog nuts. Um, and so she, she's gone <laughs> beyond bonkers and it's really fun. The movie's okay. I'd say the movie's only so-so, but every time she's on screen, it's great because she's a mute character, so she never actually speaks, and she's really intense. And, you know, I just think Barbara Steele's the hottest woman to ever live, right? I mean... Yeah, I'm looking at footage um, from this and screen grabs right now, and she looks so hot in this movie. And she's completely nuts. Like, in every single one, she looks terrible, but she looks super hot. They have a great Um, backstory for why she's nuts, and it's, like, it's a pretty... Like, she wasn't just nuts before she actually... There's an accident, and it's pretty crazy and bleak. Um, There's some bad cop storyline that runs through it with Cameron Mitchell that just totally shouldn't be in this movie that kind of cheapens it but um, but it's interesting and I think it because it's a weird kind of homage to Psycho mixed with Bad Ronald 
uh, but but you know from 1979 so right before the slasher boom that we're about to kind of hit. Um, I think it's worth watching, and the cool thing is, uh, so it is a deep cut for sure, but it's on Amazon Prime right now, so that's how I watched it, and I, I thought it was you know I thought definitely thought it was worth watching. Um, it's not a complete home run, but I, I love movies about somebody living in the wall. You could never. My gosh, yeah. It's good we fun. We bad so. Ronald the movie. Exactly. Uh-huh. So that's si- the silent scream. If you're looking, that will kick off our conversations on slashers and weird hybrids uh, as we are going to have a conversation with the director of Freaky, Mr. Chris Landon. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. How are you guys? And you also wrote this, correct? You wrote this with uh, our, uh, one of our friends of the show, Mike Kennedy, right? Of course, yeah. I, yeah, Michael and I wrote it together. It was actually the first time I've ever uh, physically written a movie with another writer. Oh, my oh, gosh. It's such a crazy process to co-write. I know both Elric and I do it. Did you guys sit in the same room or just pass drafts back and forth? We did, we did both. We sat, we sat in the same room to sort of break story, to just sort of outline it. Um, and then we, um, would, would assign, you know, um, scenes to each other and then we would pass them back to each other and rewrite each other. And then that was sort of the kind of constant, um, process until we finished. And then we got together again and kind of did a whole draft in the same room together. Nice. What was, which was the inspiration here? Was it because one thing I like about your filmography so far is it's, it's heavily youth films, you know, a lot of teen films and they all have agency and that's really exciting and and diverse voices. And it's, it's something that, you know, we didn't always see in the eighties, but what came first in this kind of genre hybrid? Was it the teen film or the idea for the slasher? What kind of, uh, for this particularly, what was the inspiration? Was it Freaky Friday or was it uh, something in the slasher? Well, you'd have to ask, you'd have to ask Michael in a funny way. Well, I mean, Michael's obviously the, you know, he, he brought the concept to me. Um, and he was going to go, it was a, it was a pitch he was working on. Um, and he was going to go out to a bunch of places and, and pitch it. Um, and so I was just sort of a practice run for him. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he, he, he had, had called it Killer Body. Um, and then he said, oh, you know, it's basically Freaky Friday the 13th. And I was like, stop, that's the title. Um, <laughs> And, and then like the concept like hit me like a sledgehammer. And it was funny because two, my knee jerk was like, oh God, that's such a good idea. And then there was another sort of part of me that was like, oh God, but did I just do this? Like, <laughs> Happy death day. Like, am I going to be sort of like, you know, repeat Randy here? And, um, and then I couldn't stop myself from pitching him stuff. And I yeah. just kept pitching and pitching and pitching. And he would finally looked at me and was like, do you just want to do this with me? <laughs> I was like, I kind of do. I kind of do. And I think, I think what was exciting about it for me and for Michael um, on the surface was that we would get to indulge in our favorite things, which were teen movies and slasher movies. I mean, I think, I, I don't think it was sort of a chicken or the egg scenario. I think it was like both at the exact same time. Um, but what was really interesting about the process and as we really started to dig into it, were all the other kind of much more personal and emotional things that started to crop up for both of us. And, you know, Michael and I have been, have been friends for a little while. Um, but we learned so much about each other's high school experiences writing this movie together. And we really bonded over, you know, we were both aggressively bullied in high school. Um, you know, I know that Michael, has talked a lot about it, um, his personal experience. And I certainly know 
talked about, you know, with him, um, you know, about how like I had I had these three guys in high school when I was a freshman in high school who would wait outside my classes for me and follow me in the hallway and shout faggot. Um, and so there was so much of Millie that was us. Um, and, and also just sort of, I lost my dad when I was 16. So there was a lot of that in the movie. Michael, you know, lost his father about, I think two years ago. Um, so there's just a lot of personal shit that we ended up being able to put into this movie. And that was, I think what helped the writing experience so much. I don't think I could have written with someone else had, if we didn't have so much unbelievable common ground, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to do this. And I, this weird, um, watching it from a female perspective, I took it as what a female would do with unbridled rage. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing the slasher embodied in the female body, I was immediately like, yeah, take down that guy. Yeah. There's three like rapey dudes, take them the fuck down. Like for me, that's what it became was this like story of where females would go mm-hmm. if we had complete and total unbridled rage. And it, yeah. was, it was kind of beautiful in that. Yeah. There's a lot of revenge fantasy and it plays on a lot of weird levels of sort of, yeah, the, um, there's wish fulfillment and there's, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that ultimately in, in such a bizarre way, even though Millie's body is inhabited by a, a man and a killer, it still turns into a female empowerment revenge story. Yeah. And that was part of the fun of writing the movie was that, you know, we knew that if Millie was a character who was really put upon and bullied and abused at school, um, then all of those same people would become sort of the perfect fodder for the killer. They were just, they would automatically present themselves almost like a buffet, you know, to, to this guy. Um, they make it easy for him to pick who to kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was also a lot of fun. I used to draw cartoons in high school with my best friend as a coping mechanism. And I would, I would draw illustrations of really bizarre ways that, that these bullies of mine could die. Hmm. Um, and it's an and it's interesting to find myself many many years later making a movie about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also informed the kills in the movie because um, they're so kind of over the top and outlandish. Yeah, which I mean, was, oh, I was just gonna say which was amazing. Like the first kill, I was like, okay, we're in. But then when the tennis racket happened, I was like, okay, now I see how this is gonna be. <laughs> like that, the wine bottle, I was like, okay, this is brutal, cool. But yeah, the tennis racket is where it got fun. Like I yeah. suddenly, it, like it gave it per- us permission to laugh with it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tonal balanced. Like what's what you're talking about before? Like there's a key scene in the kind of the middle of the film. I won't spoil anything, but in a dressing room that I found to be very emotional, and very cathartic, and very fulfilling. And yet, two beats later, you can get into a kill. You can get into the comedy of the piece. And I think one of the things that I tend not to be drawn sometimes with horror comedy is it will just be basically a comedy with elements that are horror almost just as a joke. But I feel like in all your movies, whenever there's a horror scene it plays out like a horror scene with actual tension. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of what you do. It is. I, I try to sort of, I, I mean, I'm, I, I try to stay true to the, to my horror roots. Um, you know, I approach everything that I write and direct as a fan first, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I want the scares to be real and I want the stakes to be real. Um, I think that's something that lacks in a lot of horror comedies is that there aren't real stakes because everything is about a joke. 
Um, and for me, the only way that you can have high stakes in a horror comedy is if you have an investment of, of character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why, that's why I like to go out of my way to give these characters, you know, a personal struggle and a backstory and some agency and all of those things, because I feel like that becomes the glue that binds those two genres. Um, so that they don't feel like you're just, I don't want people to feel like they're constantly bouncing around a different movie. If you're always following Millie, for example, um, and what she's going through, then I think it kind of pulls all these different elements back together. Well, people are always talking about, especially I think after Scream, it's like, where can the slasher film go? There's no no more room. It's one of those tropes. It's, it became obviously in the 80s, much more of a Scooby-Doo kind of thing. But there is what there's always been a clean lane, which is they've almost never had good characters ever. I mean, Scream, Scream is great, great characters, but pre that in the eighties, we all loved these movies, but most of them didn't do much. And so by, by sh- taking all the tropes and all the character types, which you do, and then giving each of them agency, each of them a story, especially in this film, I think uh, some of the side characters are really well fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the casting side of the, obviously, and what the, uh, the two leads did to get into the two very different roles. Like I'm obviously very, I think Vince Vaughn to me, this is like, give the Oscar nomination to Vince Vaughn because he's having so much fun. So much fun, yeah. And even seeing Alan Rook is such yeah. a jerk. I saw that teen nod for sure. I saw the Ferris nod in there. But. That, one, yeah. that one took me a beat where I'm staring at him and I'm like, I know that face. I know that yeah. fucking face. Holy shit, Ferris Bueller. And yeah. yeah, it took yeah. a sec, but it was such a smart little nod to the teen film. It was, it was really funny too because when we cast Alan Ruck... Um, and um, I told, you know, Vince was always asking me, like, who's playing this part? Who's playing that part? And so when I cast Alan, I told Vince and he got really upset. Oh. He was like, he's like, you can't do that to Cameron. <laughs> uh, so it was really funny. But yeah, casting wise, you know, when, as soon as we started writing the movie, I immediately started to, to, to think about this stuff. Michael and I both did. And, you know, Vince Vaughn was really it for us. Um, you know, I was like, well, who, who else is, is physically right for the role? Who else is like six, four and like, he's a big fucking guy. Um, and he's and, played Norman Bates before. So that helps. Yeah, he played Norman Bates. I mean, his, his more recent stuff has been very like hardcore and intense, like cell block. Um, and so I knew that Vince can be very scary when he needs to be. Um, but then I also just know him, of course, you know, his wedding crashers, you know, like that whole, you know, um, vibe. And so he's charming. Um, but he's a real actor too. And I don't mean that as a slight against other actors. I just mean that like he, when we first met, all he talked about was Millie and the character of Millie Mm. and her story and her life. And he was very touched by the personal aspects of the movie, um, which he found very unexpected in this type of a thing. Um, and so, so he was it really. And so it was just sort of a cross your fingers and hope that we get him kind of a scenario. And I was, I was genuinely shocked when we, when, when he said, yes, I really was. Um, and then Catherine was also my first choice because I've been following her work for some time. I was really impressed by the stuff that she did, um, in the Reese Witherspoon show. Um, of course I'm blanking on the name all of a sudden. Uh, Pretty um, Little Liars or? Pretty Little Liars. No, not Pretty Little Liars. Oh, but um, right. Yeah, the one on HBO. Uh, yeah. Pretty Little Lies. Oh, Pretty yeah. Little Lies. That's close. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, 
But, um, and also like Blocker, a bunch of stuff that she's done. And I worked with Catherine. Um, we worked together on Paranormal 4. So I spent a lot of time with her back on that on that movie too. Hold on, you don't just get to say Paranormal 4 and then move on because I am one of the biggest Marked Ones fans. I still want a sequel to the Marked Ones. We still say, we have long said that Marked Ones is the best paranormal. I, a good friend of mine, a writer named Andy Cochran, wrote a fantastic mind-blowingly good sequel to oh. and i was so sad that they put the kibosh on it i i personally think america's problem has been going in the purge direction and not enough of the marked ones direction so i want more marked ones less purging of our world uh, personally yeah, yeah it was a, it was a bummer but anyway the script exists um but Catherine was definitely number one choice and so i was she apparently i didn't know this until a week ago because uh, jason blum blurted it out during one of our press junkets um, but apparently she passed um, wow. the movie first. And it turned out that her agent, um, who was being a bit of a snob, um, you know, thought the movie was beneath her, um, wanted her to do more sort of like highbrow mm-hmm. fair. Um, and so she really pushed Catherine to the no. And Catherine liked the script and wanted to do it. But she was listening to her team, which, you know, you're supposed to do. Um but Jason met with Catherine and then talked her back into it. And That's so she said, she said yes. And I'm grateful that she did because she's also, it's a, it's a really challenging role and she's very good in it. In terms of process um, and getting these two actors to sort of hand off their roles to each other, yeah, because that's that's what was impressive about it is it's yeah. literally she creates the character and then Vince has to keep it going for the bulk of the yeah. film. Yeah, it's really it was a big challenge, and I think that's why they both were excited to do the film. Um, I started with Catherine, and I made uh, I made these video diaries with her in character, um, so that Vince could watch those. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just sort of like a little tutorial, like here's here's Millie. Um, so he was able to kind of really study mannerisms and sort of, and also get inside her head a bit. Um, and then we ended up spending some good time together, just rehearsal time. And our rehearsal time was less about actually rehearsing scenes, but more about working together on sort of their just discussing backstories and, and then working out the physicality of, of it all. Because what I didn't want um especially for Millie, I didn't want Vince to be doing some sort of impersonation of a girl. Like I wanted him to really sort of become her, even though there are those kind of little comedic flourishes that I think are work really well for the film. Mostly when he runs. Yeah. (laughs) I love his run. By the way, if you watch the movie and you watch the scene where Catherine is running from, from the butcher, especially on the football field, it's the same run. Oh, that's great. Um, So it actually lines up, but it's just funnier when Vince does it. Um, but yeah, they were really committed to becoming each other and, and really digging into it and doing it with real sort of with fearlessness and abandon. Um, and, and there was a lot of trust. There was a lot of trust between, between the two of them. There was a lot of trust between the three of us. Um, it's, is yeah. it harder to build the killer? I mean, I, I, cause I can see how, how Vince can be emulating, uh, a yeah. real girl, right? But how do you guys, you guys are creating like a weird backstory for a thing that you don't get to know too much because he's, yeah. you know, like Jason Voorhees. Yeah. yeah. And the killer's really shrouded aside from a brief glimpse of his like hot, like dwelling that we get. Dwelling and there's like little, there's little like tiny things super duper duper tucked in there that you have to pay so, you wouldn't miss it. You blink and miss it. But like, you know, there's 
the briefest bit of backstory is given in, from a TV report outside of a outside of like a, a, a like a little electronics shop, and you can mm-hmm. actually hear the news report talking about like you know his really like there's a brief thing about his relationship with his mother and some other stuff, uh, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what I really focused on physically with Catherine and she had never seen it, which was sort of made my head explode. She had never seen T2. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of like, I kind of want you to be like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, um, just, I thought it was really good in terms of like how laser focused, mm-hmm. um, the butcher is in terms of like victims and how he's going to, and how he enters a room and begins to sort of assess like, what are the objects in the room I can use to kill you with? Um, so, and what's fun about the role and it's, and again, it's sneaky because Catherine doesn't have a ton of dialogue when she's the butcher, but you start to see the butcher's personality peek through, especially in this scene, you know, I'm not, again, I don't want to spoil things, but there's a scene where, you know, the butcher is, is tied up um, to tied to a chair and you start to kind of see that he's kind of a sarcastic. Yeah sneaky kind of fucker um so it was fun to kind of be able to still give him a little bit of a of a, of a personality um but yeah it was definitely it was a lot of work and we had to do the work very quickly because you know these movies we have no time to mm-hmm. actually make them um and this movie had a very compressed timeline i had even less prep time than i normally do um i think i had about a week or two less on this movie than i have in the past um and you shot this one. I remember when Ryan left for set. It was Georgia or South Carolina. Um, this was in Atlanta. 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 Okay. Yeah, freezing cold Atlanta, which nobody told me. I'd never <laughs> shot a movie there, and I was like, "Oh, it's you know, it's not going to get that cold." And then I thought it was like you know, humid South. Oh my god! I was like, we were dying. Everybody was dying. Um, but um, but yeah, it was a very quick shoot. And then I also was expecting my second child. My son was was supposed to be born. Um, and so it was like this crazy compressed, like, holy shit, am I going to finish this movie before he's born? Um, which gratefully we wrapped and he was born two days later. Thank oh my gosh. You. August. My son's name is August. Um, so that was very polite and, and, and kind of him to wait. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a lot. So, um, teen slashers, I mean, are, are there any that have kind of influenced you that, you know, you're big fans of that we should definitely, you well, know, say, if you're going to yeah, make I a mean, night of it, these are some course. good ones to watch as well. Of course, of course, of course. I think, I mean, look, like Michael, I think Scream and Scream 2, um, had made big impressions, um, for me. Um, I think it's funny. It's, it's less the teen slashers but just sort of other kinds of teen movies that i Mm. think really made an impact for me from from fright night um which really blew me away as a kid um you know the the darabont blob the remake um Mm. was another movie that really stuck with me pun intended oh dylan's hair in that movie is just so (laughs) (laughs) it's on the yeah. It's its own movie. I love his hair in that movie. Um, you know, I was, I'm was i a big fan, like most, I think, horror fans of, of Jennifer's Body mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. I thought it was a movie that really sort of made you realize what a, a movie like that can look like through a female prism. Um, and I thought that was a really 
unique film. Um, and then even just random ones, like from the, you know, the, there's of course the nineties, which were chock full of teen slasher movies, you know, urban legend, um, which my, my, my good friend, Sylvia Horta, who, who passed away this year, but he, he wrote that film. Um, and, and it was a lot of fun, of course, you know, um, anything, Kevin Williamson, <laughs> you know, Kevin yeah. Williamson is still like the, 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 I don't want to call him the granddaddy because he'll get pissed because that makes him sound old. But I just mean like he is, he is one of the godfathers, I think of modern slasher. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, um, and so his stuff had a huge impact, but even the smaller stuff like Cherry Falls, you know, which was a really cool. That's a bonkers movie. And it's one that aged really well. Like, like when I first saw it, I was a little like, ah, oh, cause I was right in it. I was in Scream. I was in Urban. You know what I mean? And watching yeah. it again a few years ago, I was like, this is a really interesting and a lot of family dynamics going on. Yeah. That one. Advantage of getting lumped together at a time mm-hmm. when a lot of stuff was happening like that. But I think it was a really smart and clever slasher yeah cherry falls was a big one for me because it was shot in virginia um where i lived at the time like maybe an hour from my house and nothing's ever shot in virginia um which is why it was a really big deal i remember being like oh my god this is and and i remember um really connecting with like it was the reverse of the you have to lose your virginity yeah um, thing and it really added this kind of different element to yeah. it and so it was this it's crazy it's so yeah. subtle mm-hmm. And a reversal of something will charge a movie. Yes. And that was that was the biggest thing that really kind of just made it explode is, oh, okay, this is the reverse of everything we've been taught in the prior decade. Yeah. Um, it's a celebration of debauchery. Yeah. Um, so Which is what we get post post West. I mean, post West making Scream and into your film, you get to step out of yourself if you mix things up and see, you can't really see yourself, you can't see your gender, you can't see your identity until you flip out of it. And then yeah. suddenly you get this clarity. So that it comes back to like all your films having the strong coming of age quality to them, which I think is what makes them, you know, kind of pop up um, and, and it kind of lasts. But what about when you're young? Like what were those first slash, obviously things yeah, like Halloween, what were the ones that like Halloween. scarred you? <laughs> Halloween definitely. It's so funny. Halloween and Halloween too because I was kind of experiencing both of those films around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, they really scared the shit out of me. Um, you know, the control, the suspense, the tension, um, you know, in, in, in the first film, um, you know, that's something that I think John Carpenter is sort of an unmatched master of. Um, and it really got me. Um, and I remember like the Halloween two like the opening credits of that movie scared me so much. Just that pumpkin splitting open <laughs> to reveal a skull, you know, like that fucked me up for some reason. Um, and then of course, I, I mean, I had a, I had a very, very, very steady diet of, of horror and slasher movies at a very young age. Um, and so I was of course, you know, watching all of the Friday, the 13th movies, which clearly have, have, made a mark and certainly on this particular movie. Um, and, but even like other stuff that like just really got to me, like the burning. Um, yeah. The, I saw the burning again about a year ago and thought it was so good. Like, like it was one that back in the day I was like, yeah, it's pretty good, but so well made. Yeah. So effective, so genuinely scary, brutal. Yeah. Like a yeah. brutal film. Um, but then like ridiculous stuff too, that I loved like, um, like, like Madman, um, mm-hmm. which I, 
best horror song ever. Um, and, you know, like, Don't Go Into the Woods, which also has an amazing end credit song. Mm-hmm. Um, to, like, just compile all of these, like, ridiculous, like, funny-ass, r- stupid slasher movies. Um, but, yeah, I was watching all of it. I remember the one that my – there were two movies my dad tried to stop us from watching for a long time. And we for a while, but then eventually caved in. Um, <laughs> Maniac. Oh, yeah. oh, that one's intense for kids. Yeah. yeah. Maniac was like a no-no for my sister and I for quite some time. And uh, Understandably. I think I ended up seeing it maybe like 13 and it still kind of messed me. Yeah. Really bad it was then. about the same age when I saw it, 12 or 13. Um, and then um, I Spit on Your Grave was another one that you wouldn't let us watch. Mm-hmm. Um, Until you're 11. Completely. <laughs> Until you're 11. And then it's like. <laughs> I remember. Um, I saw I Spit on Your Grave. My cousin um, had the poster up in his bedroom when I was a kid. And I remember asking him what the movie was about. And he told me. And I never saw it until years later. But even just him telling me what it was about when I was like nine years old, like it melted my brain. So, yeah. Now, your father keeping you away from those two indicates that you guys were allowed. Because I'm always curious with young horror fans, were they watching it in secret or was a parent like, you know, uh, watching horror films with them, like what was your what was your journey with early horror? I watched a lot of it with my dad. Cool. Um, so my parents, when my parents divorced, which I think I was about five or six, um, my my mom was my mom became very religious. Um, she was a born again Christian, um, and so. I don't know if my dad was doing it just as a, like a f- sneaky fuck you. Yeah. But he just was like, go for it. And so like, apart from, from the movies, it was also like books. Like I, I remember um, I got in big trouble at school because I did a book report, I think in the third or fourth grade for a John Saul mm. horror book wow. for the children. And I remember my book report starting with a man like, murdering a child and throwing this kid's body off a cliff. Um, and I terrified all the other kids. And so um, my dad was the enabler big time. And, but I think that he understood a child's innate curiosity about mm-hmm. death, you know, and, and also how children really like to be scared as long yeah. as there's a certain safety net there, you know? Um, and so I watched tons of movies with my dad um and and also alone um at a certain point but certainly we watched a ton of them together um and it was a big bonding thing for us because um my dad we had a lot had a lot of siblings um you know i grew up in a, in a house of there were nine kids oh, wow. oh my gosh and we didn't all sort of live together at the same time and you know it was, some were half half siblings but there was just a lot of i don't want to say competition but there were a lot of people around and so to have something with him that was uniquely ours um Mm -hmm. i think that made a huge impression on me i think it's the reason why i think i make horror films that's because i had this thing that actually reminds me of something really special and something that was was my own um and so we would even on rare occasions like actually go to a movie theater and see horror films together too um, which was super cool um, and my dad did not like going out to the movies very much, um, but um, but he did for me. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Was, oh my gosh! 
Well, I mean, the, well, these movies give us catharsis, right? And I think uh, for people where you're releasing this movie in the, in the, you know, not the tail end, in the midst of a very serious pandemic, which must be also unusual. I found, we were talking beforehand, I found this film to be incredibly cathartic on a lot of emotional levels yeah. and pure entertainment levels. And I haven't seen much entertainment in this period of the pandemic that has given me this many different feelings, which I just, maybe Palm Springs is the other one that comes to mind, something that just allows a lot of different notes. <laughs> me happy. Like, yeah. yeah, it was a roller coaster ride. There were points where I was terrified, points where I was sad, but at the end, I was happy. Yeah. Um, and thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> that I have not had much of in the past seven months. So. so I guess the, the, in wrapping up, though, I guess I'd ask, like, for you, what what are you hoping? Obviously, this is being released now at a weird time where, you know, some states have theaters, some don't. Some There's drive-ins come making a surge. I think this would be a great drive-in movie, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, VOD, what what is the plan for the release? Obviously, it's, this will be dropping the same day as the release. So. Um, so the plan, so the movie comes out November 13th um, in theaters where theaters are open. Um, so, um, you know, like for us here in Los Angeles, you know, it's, you know, nothing's open. Um, (laughs) however, however, I am driving out to Ventura County on opening weekend, um, to go see it. Nice. I, I was able to, with, with the help of, of universal, very nice people at universal and AMC, they were, they secured a theater for me so I could actually bring my family because my family hasn't seen the movie yet. Um, and so I wanted them to see it safely, but in a theater, um, we're going to go do that together, which I'm really excited about. Um, so that's, so, you know, you know, I know theaters are working really hard to try and make it safe for people. I think Mm -hmm. it's a personal judgment thing. You know, I think you have to go with what's good for you because I know that that's a real iffy thing for some people. Um, and then it will get a VOD release, um, you know, about, about three weeks later, um, there's something that I don't think a lot of people know, and I don't know if I'm even supposed to talk about it, but I already did. So there you go. <laughs> um, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deal that Universal has made with, with specifically with AMC, but a few other exhibitors. Um, that, don't worry, that is out there. I did actually know that from other yeah, Universal. I thought, I thought it was out there, but it, yeah, it is. I'd it's, seen it. Yeah. Uh, what about dri- drive-ins though? Because I have been talking. I've gone a couple times, and I've seen. And this might be the best possible version of what a great drive-in movie can be great drive-in, great drive-in it's movies. fun see this with your friends at the drive-in yeah. yeah i i hope it's at i hope it's at as many drive-ins as possible i imagine it it will be um and it's certainly it's by the way it was it was my first drive-in experience was was beyond fest um, oh, wow which i'd oh never been gosh. driving before so it was it was really cool were they honking horns, flashing lights, or were they? Yeah, they were. They kind of people like try to not go crazy with that stuff, but people still did it, which was really fun. Maybe wow, the drive-in that because I I grew up in a very small town. We had a drive-in. Um, we didn't get an indoor theater; those were fancy until I was probably. 10, 11 years oh, old. Cool. Like yeah. prior to that, like if it was my birthday, we would drive into Washington, D.C. to go that's to. Amazing. Um, a I had the there. opposite experience. Like I grew up here in Los Angeles. So of course, like this is the home of movie theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the only way I saw movies. And so, yeah, it was cool to finally get to a, a drive-in. Um, so it's a great way to, yeah, definitely go go to a drive-in. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that people, for people who don't feel comfortable or who aren't able to go, to a theater um, that they won't have to wait very long. 
for the movie to, to arrive on VOD. So, but honestly, no matter what format you're watching it in, this is a trip. It's definitely going to be one of my top of the year. Yeah. So, do not yeah. miss Freaky. Cool. Um, thank you so much, Chris, thank for joining you, us this morning. We should have announced that this is literally like the election results were announced like an hour before yeah. we started taping this. Um, so we're all we're all kind we're of all smiling. Smiling. <laughs> no, we're all like really happy and bubbly, <laughs> um, really. full and of hope, full of hope, and catharsis. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. So it's good yeah. Time. It's a good time. Yeah. All right. Well, all the best for the release of this. We're, this is an absolute blast and people are going to have a lot of fun. You're going to bring a lot of joy, which was what we all need right now. Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Chris was awesome. Yeah. No, I'm really glad we got to talk to him because some of those things I didn't realize the inspiration for where the kind of idea came from because it seems so obvious and yet it's done so well. Um, so more than anything, I'm glad that Chris just mentioned Cherry Falls because both of us were talking about, we both like Cherry Falls. It's completely bonkers and would have made a great was, deep cut. Yeah, it was going to be our deep cut pick for the week, but since Chris mentioned it, um, yeah, we figured we would go elsewhere. But yeah, Cherry Falls, if you have not seen it, we um, both recommend it. It is um, 1990s Neo slasher one that does not get nearly enough attention and it's um, really crazy like it changed yeah. the tonal shifts in it and it's just really intense and there's like weird incest vibes yeah definitely highly recommend it so we we wanted to focus a bit uh, on hybrids and movies that kind of crash into each other so uh, there's no more fun recommendation we could possibly make than the slasher mixed with a mixed with a possession movie uh called, from canada can exploitation killer party so I watched this one last night and I have so many plot questions. No, don't um, even I'm try. Not, I'm, not, I'm just letting them go. Like technically they have not even performed the ritual yet, but there are killings taking place. So who's doing it? If wait, Alan wait. isn't back. The, re- the I- reason you don't have to ask that is this is a movie that seven minutes into the movie, it decides to give you an entire music video and, and a killing in a movie theater. That's never explained. Yeah, uh, never. That is that's not connected. It's like, we haven't even done, you know, the, the ritual yet. No. How are people, dying at this point but that's okay we're letting it go we're letting it go and and it's uh, i wrote beyond the frat door that's my title for this because it is so beyond it's more beyond the door than exorcist it's like when she's possessed it's crazy So this is 1986's Killer Party. Um, this is directed by William Fruitt, who is a Canadian director, um, who what I know him most as is he did a bunch of Goosebumps episodes later on in his career. Um, but in 1986, he did Killer Party. Um, the setup of Killer Party is that a um, there's this war, this kind of prank war going on between this sorority and this fraternity where they hang out, but they're also pranking each other back and forth. And it is pledge time, so the sorority decides to break into this abandoned house on campus to have their ritual there. Um, Of course, we have the house mother who's like, don't go there. It's haunted. It's cursed. There's this guy who's buried on the property. He's going to come back to life and go nuts, but they still do it. And then um, guess what? He he comes back to life and, and starts possessing them. But what we get during the interim is a slasher which is relatively unexplained um, where from the very start of the movie, there are people dying by this unseen hand. And then after we do the ritual, it switches over to possessed people doing the killing. And like um, bonkers possession movie. Like it, 
<laughs> yeah. It's more like um, I, I kind of wrote to myself, like, if you love Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and if you don't, go run and watch that movie right now because it's the greatest. Um, it totally is like that kind of crazy, like where it goes super weird, you know, bizarre, big moments. Just, yeah. There's a lot of trident action in yeah, this movie. Yeah. Um, like, there's one scene it's almost where- almost aquatic horror. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a Halloween party, and there's somebody there in a driving suit holding a trident, and somebody grabs it and uses it as a weapon, but then they- don't put it down like they continue with the trident for a while in the movie um and that is kind of just the level of this there's a lot of kind of april fool's day feel to it because it is about these pranks going back and forth but then at the end it just becomes like a full um kind of night of the demon style possession yeah and then it goes completely fucking bonkers i had forgotten that it was an april fool's movie so this is another one you could watch on april 1st Uh, like it would work pretty nicely with april fool's day yeah i I couldn't figure out if it was Halloween or April Fool's. No, I think it's April Fool's party. It's April yeah. Fool's, but they're having a costume party. Yeah, yeah. It's bizarre, everybody's yeah. in costume, so it feels like Halloween, um, but it's April Fool's. Again, don't try to ask questions about this movie. There's a Halloween party where they're celebrating April 1st, and then there's all this slasher stuff happening, but then somebody gets possessed and it just becomes a possession movie. And you know what? Don't ask questions. If, if, if you're sitting at home with a raised eyebrow going, I don't know, guys, I don't think I'm in, then I will hit you with one more fact that Paul Bartel plays a character in this called Professor Zito. Now you're in. Done. <laughs> if you don't want to watch Paul Bartel in a Canadian film playing Professor Zito, I don't know what's wrong with you. I can't help you. You're on the wrong show. Go watch a different horror show if that's what you are. We're here for deep cuts right here. <laughs> no, Killer Party is an absolute trip. And this is one that I did not appreciate until much older. This is one that I saw in high school when I was like working my way through everything that they had on the Because they had a great cover. Show. Great cover incredible cover and at the time i watched everything and this is a slasher that i probably at the time watched and went eh, it feels low rent and then never remembered it again and it wasn't until probably eight years ago when somebody had recommended it to me again i think it was ryan turek actually um had talked about it when there was a new blu-ray that came out and then i was like oh i need to revisit this and then i was like this is wonderful yeah no the music video like kind of kicks it i mean we're I mean, we're not just saying music video it's an entire music video at the top of this movie and it's in a, in a drive-in movie theater which is kind of badass but uh no that that is fun and i think that is even though i think people who are really into slashers definitely know this film so when we say it's deep cut it's not as crazy obscure as some of the things we might put in that section i think there's a lot of people who still haven't seen killer party so uh let's give it some love um and and then i guess we'll segue to saying a little more serious maybe um because we think of film as an art form right it is film is an art form and technically films can't fight but on this show we got movie fight. Movie fight. We need something to do that for us so we don't have to get movie the energy. Fight. Yeah. I think I think we need Ernie to create some graphic and sound uh, machine. Movie fight. Um, but we uh, we had this idea because we're looking at slashers today to do a couple movies that's where the slashers deserve to have their own franchises. It's kind of uh, 90s and early 2000s. So we picked two uh, that only had one movie that never were renewed for a second season. Well, plus both of them have this obsession with hearts. Oh, um, oh look at you. I didn't even see that when I was putting those two together. I assumed that's why you did this. Not even slightly. Just didn't even 
across my mind. Like, oh God, look at that. Eric's being all smarty pants. I think I grabbing two random films. No, I think I did it because I wanted to rewatch both of them because it's been like 20 years. Uh, But we are talking about 1992's Dr. Giggles. So does does Larry Drake and Dr. Giggles deserve more franchises or Valentine, the quiet, nose-bleeding, uh, baby face kind of uh, – well, no, not baby face. He's a – Cupid. Um, yeah, he's Cupid. But what's that word that you use when somebody has chubby, rosy cheeks? Cherub. 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 He's very cherub. Um, and I really like this mask. So because these he's are- Cupid, who is a fucking cherub. He's a cherub. Well, I'm glad I have you here to remind me of these things. <laughs> my inadequacies are, are well-reminded. Um, yeah, my logic. I can find much more complex connections, but I fail to see what's right in front of me. Well, that's kind of like life, really. Um, but anyway, so these are two, uh, I will say for me, I remember Dr. Giggles when it was being advertised when we were young uh, on the back of Fangoria. I remember seeing, and maybe other magazines too, I was probably the most excited I ever was to see a movie. And then it just didn't do much for me when I sort of what? disappeared. I didn't, what? when I was a kid, I just didn't, I was kind of like, ah. I don't, maybe it was all the one-liners, maybe I was tired. Um oh but that was my experience then. I will have different, and then uh, and then Valentine was one of the ones coming kind of later at the kind of tail of the new slasher cycle of where Scream and I know what you did, Urban Legends, and it's at, by Jamie Blanks. It's coming right after all those, so I think we're kind of tired by then, and I think that could have been one of the reasons it, t- it didn't get more guests. So those, the what I want to hear you start kick because I got ideas here. Okay, so um, Dr. Giggles, I'm so excited, I can't say it. Dr. Giggles is amazing, Uh and you are just nuts. Um, So Dr. Giggles, I saw this in the theater. I snuck into this movie. That's how excited I was. I remember- um, 92, so you're 32. Wow. (laughs) I mean, no, you weren't 32, so you're 32 now, so you were- Eight. Oh my God, Becca. Eight. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for that. Thank you for wow. giving me the uh, the benefit of the doubt there. I will. Um, so yeah, I remember sneaking into this movie because I was definitely, even though I was not eight, I was still way too young to be yeah. seeing this. Um, but we snuck in. And I remember also renting this in excess. I think eventually I bought my own VHS copy of this. I loved this movie. It was so over the top with the gore. It was so over the top um, with the hearts. There's a scene where a kid crawls out of his mom's corpse. And then the the cop is like, like some perverse second birth. And then the kid crawls out of her corpse. It's it's Um, actually his flashback story. It's like the background of the characters. How did his dad, who was like, I guess, a doctor who murdered all these people get away from the crime scene? And it turns out in a in the dead mother's stomach, she he was sewing in there. And it is definitely the high point of that movie is where you see this kid crawl out of that. It's a it's an amazing effect. It's crazy. Yeah. And then there's and he's does Larry Drake is nothing but one lines. This is directed by Manny Cotto, by the yeah. way. Um and it's nothing but one lines where like he is um, you know, holding people's hearts and every single time he has like some type of witty line that goes along with it. And that continues all the way up until the very end when I rewatched this um um, two nights ago at the very end he breaks the fourth wall and he turns to it's as he's being killed supposedly um he turns to the actual camera and says is there a doctor in the house and then he dies it is so just like three stooges a uh, marx brothers level of horror 
Um, I don't know if this is going to work in contemporary audiences by any stretch. So we'll, we'll lay our, our pluses. Uh, he has fun contraptions. The contraptions are fun. Like you could keep oh, yeah. going to town with those because they're kind of accentuated medical devices, which of course is totally not believable really while you're watching it, but it's fun. Great performance. Larry Drake's great. Yeah. He uh, has, um, I felt like there was more character there yeah. um, because he's got, you know, the whole history of his mom died of a heart condition and his dad was a doctor who was trying to save it and they couldn't save her. And so he's now escaped from a mental asylum. And even though he's killing people, he's doing it in this altruism of fixing a girl's broken heart. She's dying of a broken heart. Um, yeah, that, so- that, that, that storyline's interesting. The problem, one of the things with this movie, watching it again, is in the middle, there isn't much happening. And then it kind of really rushed. It felt a little rushed, like it felt like a movie that didn't maybe have enough budget to film some of the stuff that might have been planned in the middle because it, it just kind of gets wrapped up real quick. But there's a lot of fun imagery, good one liners. Uh, I definitely am disappointed there wasn't at least a second one where he would have been like a zombie version of that character, like a like a bit more dead version of the doctor i think would have been fun because he also gets burned all right so before we decide we're going to valentine um i know valentine Valentine, i love the mask i think it's fantastic it's like because this is obviously before you get baby the kind of baby uh faced one in happy death day uh that i feel like borrowed a little um the hills run red has a baby face mask like you see it in the strangers um uh, because this is valentine i think that i think what actually tips it over though is the is the nose bleeding thing i really like with the mask because it looks really cool the way they run together uh all the slasher scenes in this this is by jamie blanks who does you know good stuff on say urban legend all the slasher scenes are really well directed and it mm-hmm. actually work as slasher scenes the problem is everything else it's it's like i'm sorry if you wrote the script i think it's a terrible script and i think the performance it has all these great actors based on a book is it Um, i mean and when i say terrible i don't necessarily mean that the screenwriter is terrible what i mean is the kind of dialogue that they're delivering and the kind of characters basically if if the killer hadn't killed them all we would have because these are probably the most like reprehensible people i've and like they're all like it feels very influenced by um like uh reality tv it feels like like reality tv was huge at that time so everyone is wealthy and uh you know david borean dennis richards all the marley shelton's always fun it's um, got Catherine heigl so this really was like like a star maker i'll say where it does have denise richards um david borean's um yeah the line it's not like you're some angel yeah that somebody says that to him. It's not like you're some angel. And I'm just sitting there going, oh my God, like kill me now, right? That line. And so this was um, one of the neo slashers where they did not try to find the final girl exactly instead. And they weren't trying to have likable characters. Like you watch Nightmare on Elm Street, even if you're watching four or five, mm. you know, even not the good ones. The characters are still fun. There's still something about them that is likable, that's identifiable. This was kind of later on when they were making everyone people that you want to see die. And so when they die these absolutely horrible deaths, it's more of kind of like a, yeah, take that. I hate you, Paris Hilton's character in House of Wax. Right. And it opens with a flashback. It opens with the story, the backstory, which is they all rejected this kid. Then they lied about what he did and made him look like he was attacking a girl when he didn't. And then they stripped him. It's like, so then you don't have a lot of sympathy for anyone in the story because he gets sent to reform school and then there is no like there is never a question of is he the one doing it it's just a question of which character did he become yeah Um, because they're like it's you with plastic surgery no it could be you with plastic surgery and to be honest it almost feels like in the script that they didn't 
100% decide till the very end. Like, almost like in testing the movie, we could decide which of and then film a little addendum. Because it doesn't really matter. That said, so there's a lot about this movie that I don't like in terms of character, plot, uh, and kind of, you know, just dumbness. I do think that as a slasher, it's a really got a good slasher. It's the character in the mask is a good slasher and the slashing is really effective. So that's why this is actually a closer race than what it might sound like when one film is more fun than the other. Um, so a lot to weigh in here. This could be the first one we potentially ever disagree on. We might fight it out to the death. I don't know. But uh, lay it down for me. What do you think? So the question here, movie fight is usually about one film surviving. But tonight the question was only one of them gets a franchise. Yes. So and this is where this is where I'm going to get a little crazy. I love Dr. Giggles. I think Dr. Giggles is great. I do not think that that is a character that we could survive another two or three films of. So in pure franchisability, I'm going Valentine. It is not my favorite film, but if we are using the slasher franchise criteria, Valentine, I could see a reboot of right now, and it would be good. If you were going to reboot Dr. Giggles right now, you would drastically have to revamp that character. Yeah, I mean, I think Chris Rock as Dr. Giggles, I'm into. I'm down for something new and fresh. So let's just roll with it. I'm down. Any comedian, get somebody to make it edgy. Uh, yeah, I'm totally with you. Okay, sounds like we're not going to disagree. I think Dr. Giggles is the more interesting, <laughs> weird movie. I would love to see one more Dr. Giggles. Don't get me wrong. I think I think if we could have seen a kind of messed up, I don't know, Larry Drake's still with us. God, I, I, I don't I don't even know. Night of the Scarecrow, uh, Benny from LA Law, great actor. Um, that character, that's the tough thing. That character character is so him now it's not with us he passed uh, away in 2016 oh now i want to pick dr giggles r.i.p uh, larry drake um that kind of broke my heart at the end of this episode and that's very apt for the topic of heartbreak um yeah. but but i do think that every every year if at valentine's day there was a new valentine movie with just taking the mask and then maybe it's a different broken-hearted story each time not the same cast of characters but somebody some avenging angel i think there's a lot of legs there um, as just the kind of uh, kind of a style in a franchise, so I'm with you on that. For me, um, Valentine gives you more flexibility. The killer from Valentine, not the characters, yeah, those not characters, the character. and not who the killer was. Who cares? Because yeah. it was stupid. Yeah, right? who cares? But who picks up the mask and how it continues into the next one? Who becomes the Mike Myers, or who yeah. becomes you know that one in the next one? Um, I think that there's definitely more flexibility as a purely marketing executive kind of development person. Yeah. I would pick Valentine over Lady yeah. Drake's Dr. Giggles. So, but that said, if you watch one of them tonight, go with Dr. Giggles for Larry yes. Drake. All right. Yes, go with Dr. Giggles. All Let's do that. Uh, what well, up, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's all our slashers. That's a whole lot of slashing today. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got freaky. We did some slashers. And we will be back in two weeks with our Thanksgiving show. I, we um, might even be after Thanksgiving. So we might be missing a bit. It'll be Black Friday. It'll yeah. be our next episode will release on Black Friday. So we got to figure out um, besides watching Blood Rage again. I, what are we do? I need to order old old style anytime to watch that. That's the beer that you need for that movie. Uh, make sure uh, if you aren't aware, we are on all those socials. Uh, we're on. We have a 
Twitter and an Instagram for this. And there is a some kind souls who started a Facebook group called Colors of the Dark After Hours. So, uh, you know, it's a good place for us to where we'll stick a bunch of info if you're looking to know what's happening. And also uh, the two of us do if you're looking for like overtime and you want a few more really deep cut weirdo recommendations. That's what the Patreon is for. And we do a couple uh, short episodes on there every month, uh, kind of breaking down weird movies for you because we love them. Super weird. I talked about Monster Man this month. Oh, it's like that was the uh, the monster truck horror film from the early two thousands. Yes, and I did Dragu Saga, a Finnish TV movie that is a ghost story. So if that doesn't sound, I said to you, this is the ultimate deep cut. So, uh, but yes, uh, we appreciate you guys listening. It's super cool to hear from you. It really does help when you let us know that you're listening, so we know we're not just talking to each other. We would do exactly this, even if you we weren't here. Exactly. <laughs> this is us. Having calamari and beer, Basically. which is what we used to do before. When humans pandemic. did things. Our favorite thing, we have a restaurant that we used to go to and we would get calamari and sit there and drink. And Elric would have a beer. I would have tea. Um, and somehow tea and calamari make sense. And now we just do it on Zoom. I miss that. I really do. Uh, I think I think we all miss just real life. But um, not like leaving the house and not wearing sweatpants and oh. having a reason to take my hair out of a ponytail. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, but we're, we're so on point on this show. If you'd like to hear us off point, go to the Patreon. <laughs> no, the Patreon is where we uh, we talk about everything that is in horror and then a little bit about it horror. It goes a little off the rails. Uh, but yeah. thank you for supporting and listening. This is episode three. Uh, and we might even, we, we have another uh, live show we're going to release at some point soon. So yeah. uh, check that, wait for that. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry, PhD, and Elric Kane. I'm going to drop that every Dr. Time. Elric Every <laughs> I'm changing my first name to Doctor. <laughs> uh, executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Avi Gold. Associate publisher, Jessica Safavamir. And our amazing sound engineer, rock star, Ernie Hurtado. Thank you so much, Ernie. You are always amazing. And uh, with that... Feel the urn. Feel the urn. Feel the urn. Have a great night, everybody. Yeah.